Michael Suarez and I read the uh, applicants for the award. The applications, uh, the submissions were particularly strong this year, the strongest that I can remember. And it was very difficult to make decisions. This is not always the case, but it certainly was this year. So breaking our usual custom, we had two honorable mentions as well as uh, the first prize winner. One of them is Elizabeth Doe, who is from the Mackinac Department of Art at UVA. The project title is The Venus and the Urban Night Reinscribing the Nocturnes of Mark Lewis. Close or the last of Erie's woes, and waft 
down on foot to the land where risen again the eerie band on brighter streams and fairer plains through the war and chase again. I think I heard you use the word waft publicly in my life. It's a genuine honor. <laughs> this may be the first public reading that any part of On Foot the Son of the Forest has received in nearly two centuries. But never mind, using the poem as a case study, Miller intelligently explores questions of literary merit. By examining a work of literature entirely forgotten today, he is able to bring to the fore questions too easily overlooked when studying canonical works of literature. Thanks for not reading my, my speech. <laughs> um, first off, I want to thank a number of people who helped with this project. Um, David Whitefield and the Special Collections serves as my faculty sponsor. Anna Brickhouse and Jerry McGann in the Department of English let me test the ideas with them uh, during the early phases of the project. Jim Green at the Library Company in Philadelphia taught my rare book school course and expanded my sense of how books come into the world. Fellow grad students in English and beyond have been valued peers and friends since I arrived in Charlottesville. And numerous staff at rare book school have been incredibly supportive, encouraging, and professional as I took the plunge into book history. This past Monday, in fact, and I probably shouldn't be admitting this in the present setting, Barbara kindly pointed out to me as I was preparing my handout but the term rectum inverso means something closer to front and back rather than right and left. In other words, thanks are given to everyone. Um, as Terry explained, my rare book school project was an experiment in literary oblivion. For the past year and a half, I've studied the production, dissemination, and disappearance of a long poem entitled Antwa, the Son of the Forest, written by an American soldier named Henry Whiting and published anonymously as a book in 1822. The essay I produced for my research, I should say from the outset, did not seek a rehabilitation of Antwa as much as a post-mortem. That is, I wanted to explore questions of literary merit and canonicity through a kind of negative theology by examining a work of literature that had never made it anywhere near the canon, and whose social and material ties in its own time were significant. I first stumbled upon Henry Whiting's Antwa entirely by accident. Because I'm interested in the relation of poetry to music, I was hoping to learn more about the lyre, or the trope for poetic expression. This was back in December of 2014. So in pursuit of lyres, I began searching Virgo, the UVA library's online catalog. And before, found, before long, I had found a record for a book called The Columbian Lyre, Specimens of Transatlantic Poetry, published 1828. The UVA libraries didn't hold a physical copy of the book, but they made a digital facsimile available through Virgo. Opening this, I found the book to be a Scottish anthology of American poetry, and its opening poem was Antwa, which begins, Pilgrim from transatlantic climes of elder race and elder times. Intrigued, and at this point, basically having abandoned liars altogether, um, I searched specifically for Antwa um, in Virgo, and was somewhat surprised to find a single print book by that name in special collections. And since the fall term had just ended, and since my wife was off visiting her sister in Kansas, I figured what better way to spend the day than going down the special collections rabbit hole. I walked from Alderman to Small, entered my request on the computer, 
received the book and started reading. Antwa might best be described as a kind of light epic set in the 1650s in the Great Lakes region of North America. It is narrated primarily by a character named Antwa, an Indian of the Erie tribe, who tells a French missionary about the defeat of his tribe at the hands of the Iroquois. I didn't know much about uh, early American epics when I came across Antwa, but in an era when the most famous example of the genre I would learn was Joel Barlow's 1807 Columbiad, a poem that put Christopher Columbus in the driving seat. Henry Whiting's focus on his young nation's native tribes seemed notable. As I turned the pages of his old book, something else caught my eye, a series of ethnographic prose illustrations of Indian culture and customs following the poem itself, provided by Lewis Cass. Cass was the governor of Michigan territory during the 1820s, and decades later, the Democratic presidential candidate and secretary of state under James Buchanan. After some more sleuthing, I learned that the 1828 Scottish anthology, where I had originally found Antwa, was in fact the first collection of American poetry published in Europe. Perhaps it was just a case of archive fever, but I couldn't help wondering whether I had discovered a work of some significance. Should Henry Whiting's name be appearing on syllabi across America? The short answer, I think, is no. <laughs> But the process of, of exploring this possibility in the case of Antwa raised interesting questions about the reasons we assign literary value to material objects. What happens when you read a work of literature that no one remembers, but which still endures in a physical form? A work that gave up the ghost long ago as far as literary criticism is concerned, but which still hasn't shuffled off the mortal coil. What I realized over the course of my research and what my essay ended up arguing is that making sense of a vanished work like Antwa brings to the fore questions of historical documentation too easily overlooked when studying canonical works of literature. In other words, because the canon of American literature has never included Antwa, a modern reader seeking value in his particular text must do so, at least initially, by exploring the poem's historical and material embeddedness rather than consulting its status within a more narrow history of literary criticism. The pertinent question becomes not why is this work of literature good, but why was this work of literature made? Indeed, learning about how and why Antwa was made illuminated from a host of fascinating events in antebellum America. These include the discovery of the source of the Mississippi River, the founding of the University of Michigan, the first documented instance of literary writing by an American Indian, the activities of the Bread and Cheese Club headed by James Fenimore Cooper in New York, the publication in Scotland of the first, Amer uh, first European anthology of American poetry, the almost successful 1848 presidential campaign of the statesman Lewis Cass, and the publication of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's massively popular Song of Hiawatha. None of these events are described in Henry Whiting's poem, and yet they hover around the edges of its dusty pages once you start figuring out how and why Whiting composed his work. One of the goals of Whiting's poem is clearly ethnographic. As a soldier posted in what was then the Northwest Territory of the United States, Whiting is attempting to come to terms with the fact that Europeans did not discover North America, that myriad native peoples had inhabited the land for hundreds of years before Whites arrived, and were continuing to do so in the early 19th century. Whiting's imagined account of the defeat of the Erie Indians in the 17th century, a time prior to the establishment of the United States, stands in some critical, if ambiguous, relation to the history and discourse of his own moment. 
As I read deeper into Anfa, I found myself less interested in the poem per se than in what could be called its extra literary attachments, moments where Whiting is attempting to reach out to make sense of contemporary developments in the Northwest Territory. I mentioned already the series of prose illustrations of Indian customs following the poem provided by the governor of Michigan, Lewis Cass, whom Whiting knew personally. An even more obvious extra literary feature of the work is a series of footnotes appended to the poem itself, based on Whiting's personal experience in the territories of Michigan and Wisconsin. Three pages into the poem, for instance, we find a footnote glossing the linked aisles found on Lake Michigan. <coughs> Excuse me. The footnote reads, now called the Beaver Islands, in Lake Michigan, or Lake, or the Great Lake, as named by the natives. Further footnotes describe other geological and hydrological features of the region and provide brief ethnographic observations about Indian practices of hunting, trading, religion, and language. <coughs> it may be helpful here to pause for a moment and say a bit about the title of my project, Making American Literature, Poetry with Footnotes. Antwa opens up a period in American history, the early 19th century, when questions of national identity and independence were on everyone's mind. And so the phrase, making American literature, is meant to gesture in two directions. It gestures for the material process of physically making literature, of making books, but also toward the ideological and aesthetic process of making it American. The second half of my title, Poetry with Footnotes, alludes to a 1947 essay by Cleon Brooks called Keats's Sylvan Historian, History Without Footnotes. In this famous essay, Brooks reads John Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn as the paradigmatic example of the self-coherent, history-denying artwork. What Brooks means by the phrase history without footnotes is that literature can't have and shouldn't have footnotes because if it's any good, it will always transcend the historical moment of its creation. So it's a waste of effort to try to tie a poem to a specific time and place. As the urn itself puts it at the end of Keats's poem, beauty is truth. And as far as Cleonth Brooks is concerned, that is all we need to know. But in the case of Antwa, Whiting is clearly trying to make American literature by writing poetry with literal footnotes, among other things. These footnotes, along with the other extra-literary aspects of his work, are precisely the means by which Whiting tries to capture the uniquely American aspects of his lived experience in the 1820s. I think Brooks is correct when he says that some literature transcends its origins, but what Antwa has taught me is that this is not some spiritually transcendent process, but rather a far more mundane, yet no less significant process, in which people and institutions carry certain artworks forward, both physically and figuratively, into successively new present moments, interlocking networks of readers, teachers, anthologies, classrooms, universities, critical editions, libraries, websites, etc., keep certain works in lively circulation, while others, like Antwa, lose momentum and are forgotten. A given work's canonicity is precisely this capacity for material longevity within a particular social and institutional horizon. The fact that we don't remember Antwa today doesn't mean it isn't literary. It simply means it's not canonical. And so reading Antwa today generates a kind of touching bibliographical pathos, because we already know how the story ends, underground in the climate-controlled literary purgatory of special collections. <laughs> When they enter this purgatory, when they do the work of figuring out how and why Antwa came into the world of the living and how it left, we begin to see the historical processes by which literature is valued and devalued. 
We might come across, for instance, a particularly nasty review of the 1828 Scottish anthology called the Columbia Meyer Specimens of Transatlantic Poetry, in which you'll recall Antwa was included. This review was written by the influential American critic William Leggett, and it denounces the collection categorically. At one point, Leggett exclaims, referring to two of the anthologized poets, who, in the name of common sense and all the muses, are Henry Dennison and George Robertson Jr. of Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> I don't know, they're going to. Leggett's final flourish is worth quoting at length. He writes, We will not go longer on the volume before us. That it does not afford a fair specimen of the poetry of this country must be evident to every reader. Where were Bryant and Halleck and Hillhouse and Pinkney and Brainerd and a dozen more if the compiler had really been desirous of doing justice to the literature of America? But doubtless his object was to make a book of transatlantic poetry, thinking that the title would cause it to sell however poor might be its contents. As to Antwerp, which occupies the first place in the collection, we candidly acknowledge that we have not read it. <laughs> it's in fact that it may never have ever been read. Not being inclined to believe from the other evidence of want of discernment and taste with which the book abounds, we shall have to go to Scotland to learn what American poem is the best specimen of the genius and talents of our native bards. For all the score and legate inflicts on the works he read and disliked, Antwa receives an even crueler fate, that of being consciously and casually ignored. I make this observation not to suggest that Leggett would have considered Antwa a good poem if only he had read it. I simply want to highlight Leggett's review as an explicit attempt at national canon formation by an influential American critic who throughout his review either highlights or downplays a given author's social and geographical affiliations to support his own claims for aesthetic merit. In the years after this review, Antwa disappears from the literary map. Multiple bibliographies of American literature, as they mention Antwa at all, often misidentify its author, as do many university libraries that hold a copy of the book. It appeared anonymously originally, so it's, you can see why that would happen. If literature, as Franklin Moretti has suggested, is a slaughterhouse, Antwa is an exemplary victim. And yet the book is still there, in special collections. And as perhaps you've guessed, Antwa and Henry Whiting weren't entirely forgotten after 1828. The coterie of friends and peers that Whiting had developed in Michigan would play an important part in literary history in the coming decades. One of these friends was the ethnographer Henry Rose Schoolcraft, who knew both Whiting and the Michigan governor, Lewis Cass, quite well. In the early 1820s, Schoolcraft, the ethnographer, had married a woman named Jane Johnston of mixed Ojibwa and Scotch-Irish uh, descent, who was herself a poet, and is today acknowledged as the first American Indian literary writer. Schoolcraft's marriage to Jane Johnston sparked his interest in Ojibwa language and customs, and during the late 1820s and 1830s, with help from Jane, Schoolcraft compiled hundreds of native folk tales, ultimately publishing them in 1839 in a two-volume collection called Algic Researches. This work would have a profound, if oblique, impact on the American literary imagination, for it was Algin Researches that served as the primary source text for Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's incredibly popular epic poem, Song of Hiawatha. Longfellow published his work in late 1855, and by 1857, he estimated it sold 50,000 copies. Schoolcraft's reaction to Longfellow's success was understandably bittersweet. He was flattered that Algic researches had helped inspire the famous poet's work, but chagrined that his own collection had never sold well. 
trying to capitalize on Longfellow's success. In 1856, Schoolcraft actually reissued algebraic researches as the myth of Hiawatha and other oral legends. Talk about a rebranding. Um, this reissued collection bore a glowing dedication to Professor Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. That should be on the first page. Um, the irony, of course, is that it was Schoolcraft who provided Longfellow to figure Hiawatha, and not the other way around. Although you wouldn't know it from his dedication. And the ironies of influence don't stop there. For in Schoolcraft's original 1839 edition of Algebraic Researches, the dedication was not to Longfellow, but to another poet altogether. This is page two. As you can see, this earlier dedication is to Lieutenant Colonel Henry White of the United States Army. In other words, before attempting to cash in with the East Coast pacemakers, Schoolcraft named the actual inspiration of his work. Not the celebrity Longfellow, but the soldier poet Henry Whiting, a true friend, if also a name already lost to literary history. Canonical literature has, by necessity, sloughed off successive historical presence in order to arrive in our own contemporary moment. Such works reflect back on the various histories they emerge out of, but they do not function primarily for modern readers as documentary historical materials. Instead, they function, function as what we call works or texts, terms denoting immaterial concepts rather than tangible objects. Sitting defiantly forgotten works like Antwa can productively flip the equation. Because such works are materially remediated, that is, they are shared, copied, republished, reviewed, anthologized, etc., within a relatively narrow historical period and then forgotten, reading them today means understanding them, at least initially, as historical documents. In other words, it is precisely because Anto never made it anywhere near the canon that reveals, more immediately the canonical works, the necessarily material historical basis of canonicity. This fact, in hindsight, is what I took from my Red Book School course with Jim Green last summer. Namely, that making books is a complicated and involved physical process that necessarily implicates multiple people, institutions, and social networks. Printers, writers, bookbinders, typesetters, type makers, paper mills, churches, libraries. These are just a few of the many players required to give books as such, as physical and social objects, meaning no book is an island. As more and more of our lives are digitized, this is precisely why we need to preserve the books. Books represent a lived infrastructure of knowledge that isn't reducible to the text they contain. Texts can be uploaded to the internet. Books cannot. If canonicity is allowed to become synonymous with literariness, then it is that much easier to shuffle off the bibliographic body in favor of the textual soul. But if literariness emerges primarily and fundamentally as a material phenomenon, then no work of literature, no matter how abject or abandoned, can ever be thought devoid of merit. Something like this, I think, is what a young Henry Whiting realized in a brief essay he wrote for the weekly Detroit Gazette in February of 1820. In this essay, Whiting imagines a timeline in which humans, and even books, are mere blips on the geological radar. He writes, If an ancient inhabitant of this western world, who once stood upon the heights of Queenston and saw Niagara pour its massive waters down the precipice there, could now revisit the altered scene, his thoughts, perhaps, might span the mighty revolutions of nature. But he who witnesses only those scarcely perceptible changes which take place in the short career of human life 
must borrow his faint conceptions of their magnitude from the light of reason and science. One month after Ode on a Grecian Urn appeared a continent away, Whiting imagines in this provincial Detroit newspaper a new American history calibrated not to human time or even bibliographic time, but to geologic time. What Whiting realizes is that the stories we tell about where we're from go back only so far. Reason and science offer tools for thinking outside ourselves, and they can write down our discoveries in books. But even this isn't permanent. There's a book called Antwa that I stumbled upon in special collections over a year ago. Since then, I found only one other thing by that name, Antwa Township in southwest Michigan, population 6,500. It's in a place called Cass County, some 150 miles west of Lake Erie. Thank you. Thank you.